Thanks for tuning in to The Sword and Trial today. Uh, today we have the privilege of having Carl Truman in the studio with us. Dr. Truman has been here teaching for the Institute of Public Theology, and uh, you may know him from his books. Uh, one of the most significant books I've read in the last 20 years or so is his Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and that was a large part of what he was teaching this last week. And so Graham and I had a wonderful conversation with him on this episode, uh, talking about a range of things from his background to what he observes uh, going on in the broader evangelical world and also whether or not there's any place for CRT in Christianity. So you'll want to listen. And then there's a bonus. So when we get to the end of the episode, don't don't just uh, tune out because there is a little bonus edition that we will have in store for you as well. Welcome to the Sword and Trowel. Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exist for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. I'm Graham Gundon. We're delighted to have you join us today, and we have in the studio with us today Dr. Carl Truman. Carl, welcome to the Sword and the Trial. It's great to be here, Tom. Yeah, Thanks we're glad to have you. We've uh, tried to have you on the, the podcast for a while and just had different things come up at the last minute and never been able to do it, so now you're here with us in person. Actually trapped in Florida for that's, a few days. That's so, right. Yeah, you, you caught me. <laughs> well, that's not a bad place to be trapped. You've just completed uh, teaching a week's course for us at the Institute of Public Theology. How'd that go for you? I had a blast. It was great fun. Good students, good questions. Uh, high energy class, I felt. You know, as, pr- as a teacher, you always feed off the energy of the students. Yeah. And it seemed, from my perspective, to go very well. You'd have to ask them yeah, for more well, accurate accounts, I'm well, sure. But, all, uh, all the ones I've talked to said it was excellent. The, the lectures I listened in on were great as well. So we appreciate that, and you deserve a couple of days of uh, R&R. I hope you get that over these next few days. Thanks very much. Looking forward to it. Well, we've uh, wanted to have you uh, on the podcast just to talk to you a little bit about uh, things that you've experienced, the way God's positioned you, gifted you. Um, and what you see going on. There's a lot of intersection with things that you've written about and have taught on and what we're concerned about here on the Sword and Trial. But I'd love to start a little bit about your background. So uh, you are from England, is that right? That's correct, So tell us about your background. Were you raised in a home that taught you the gospel, or how did you come to Christ? No, um, I I, I had a a fairly idyllic childhood. I was born near Birmingham, but when I was pretty young, my parents moved to Gloucestershire over in the west country of England. So I had a very rural upbringing, uh, which I remember really with, with unqualified happiness mm. by and large. But my parents were not Christians. And I first heard the gospel through the witness of a friend at school who took me to hear Billy Graham when he was uh, doing a, a, a rally or a series of rallies in England in 1984 Mm. and started going to church after that and probably there was no dramatic Damascus Road conversion but probably became a Christian in my first year at university. Mm. That was through the reading of uh, works by Dr. J.I. Packer, particularly his book God's Words that Mm. was given to me by the local (coughs) Baptist minister just before I departed for college. Yeah, You know, I, I talked to uh, Dr. Packer one time about that book. I thought it was one of the best books he mm. ever wrote. Yeah. And he, he agreed, but it didn't seem to get much play. It wasn't highly regarded, but 17 Bible words yeah. that uh, I used for years in teaching yeah. and helping uh, folks when I was early in the ministry. So that's fascinating. So what about what year was that? that uh, Probably about 1985, 1986. Okay. Very good. Very good. Yeah. And uh, I just learned 
Graham, you were named after right. Billy Graham. That's is that right. right. Billy Graham was very influential on my father, who's also a minister, um, uh, named me after him. So how did you um, sense that God was leading you into the ministry and kind of work that you have now? Well, I, I didn't get much of an inner call, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> uh, my academic career was partly the result of me. I, I got a scholarship to the University of Aberdeen to, to, to do a PhD in Reformation. Mm. Uh, and that was great, but I had not been able to find a job doing anything else. So it was the mm. one thing that came through of all the applications I put in. I ended up ultimately uh, <coughs> serving for a while as an Orthodox Presbyterian minister in outside Philadelphia mm -hmm. while I was teaching Westminster. And again, that was not so much an internal call as an external call. Mm -hmm. My wife and I had been members of, a, of an OPC church that uh, was struggling to be able to call a full-time minister. Mm -hmm. And as I was already doing a fair bit of the, the preaching and teaching at the congregation, uh, I threw my hat into the ring to, to keep the church going for a few years while mm. hopefully things got consolidated. Right. So I'm afraid I can't give you any story of the sort of the, the mystic voice, pick up and read or something like that. Uh, I, I, I've been guided by circumstances, yeah. I guess, by well, and large. God's a God of providence, so you know, we acknowledge that. Uh, but you were a Baptist before you became a yeah. Presbyterian, so I've got you in my... Uh, Hall of Fame of former Baptists. Okay, yeah, so. the Apostate Hall of Fame. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I wasn't so. going to say it quite like that, but nevertheless, yeah. Yeah. So, and so what have you been doing the last few years? Tell us what uh, your career Well, in uh, I taught for many years at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, but in 2017, I got a, a year's research fellowship at Princeton University. Mm -hmm. uh, where I researched my, my, what became my book on, on the rise of the modern self. And then while I was at Princeton, Grove City College offered me uh, a position uh, teaching at Grove. So for the last five years, I've been at Grove City College teaching in the humanities mm. core there, but also some electives for my department, which is biblical and religious studies. So how's it been for you going from teaching graduate students or those that were mostly headed toward uh, ministerial mm. life to teaching undergrads who are going to go in a variety of uh, careers? It's quite different. They, have, they both have things to commend them. I think teaching men for the ministry was fascinating. Uh, and I think it was encouraging to see some of the quality of men that were going in for the ministry and to be part of shaping them uh, in that key moment in their, their vocation. I, I started my career teaching undergraduates in the United Kingdom, and I, I felt a pull back to teaching undergraduates here, partly because if you teach postgraduates at seminary, I don't mean to downplay seminary teaching, but by and large what you're doing is you're giving the students better arguments for what they believe already, which is definitely a worthwhile thing. But the 18 to 22-year-olds, it's a real battle for the minds. Mm. The challenge is, is not to give them better arguments for what they believe already, but for, to help them think through some of the big questions of human existence mm. in a thoughtful and, and responsible kind of way. So I, I love the 18 to 22-year-old is my kind of age bracket I think yeah. um, may reflect my own level of maturity perhaps, <laughs> but, I, but I've really enjoyed teaching uh, undergrads once again wonderful wonderful and you've been at Grove for how long now five years <laughs> um, now you guys have had a bit of a dust-up over the past uh, four three four years um, and you being there many people accused you of being woke and uh, 
yeah. a, left, a leftist yeah. because of yeah. some of the things that were happening on, on the campus there. So what, what exactly happened? And are you woke? Uh, well, I think as far as what happened on the campus, it was all blown up out of all proportion. And what fascinated me was that none of the critics that I read had ever bothered picking up a phone and contacting me. Mm. And from what I can make out from colleagues, had never bothered <clears throat> picking up a phone and talking to colleagues. My impression was they spoke to a few disaffected and a few disaffected students and a few disaffected colleagues and allowed that to become mm. the source of clickbait, essentially. Right. So is the institution perfect? Not at all. Uh, I think that when you judge an institution, you always have to look at the direction it's moving in rather than do a, a spot check on where it is at the moment. And if you look at the last 20 years of Grove's existence, it is those with institutional memory would say it is a far more distinctively Christian college now mm. uh, than it has been, for certainly for sort of living memory. Um, and I found, you know, when you think of the things I write, uh, that I am supported by the administration in the stuff I write is quite remarkable. I've been to another Christian liberal arts college this year and been protested by the students. Uh, so I'm inclined to think, you know, is Grove perfect? No. Uh, is it a pretty good option? Yes. Mm. Yes. When did you first begin to... Um Oh, by the way, I'm not, I'm, I'm not woke, but it, okay. depends, how you, it okay. depends how you define it. I, just, I wanted to hear it from your mouth. Yeah. I'm going to yeah, change my question. I didn't question. want to be dodging that question. <laughs> well, my next question was, when did you start becoming woke? But I'll, I'll uh, rephrase that now. When did you start becoming aware of some of the things that now have become full uh, bloom in yeah. our culture? Oh, well, as my background is Reformation history. And mm -hmm. as a historian, you're always interested in culture. I mean, it's past culture. But the big question for historian or, or for historian of my kind of stripe, uh, an intellectual historian, historian of, you say historian of ideas, is you know, why is this person thinking this way at this point in time? Which always raises questions of the culture in which that person's operating. So if you're dealing with the Reformation, for example, you can't reduce the Reformation to the printing press, but you clearly have to look at how the printing press reshapes culture in the late 15th, 16th centuries. Uh, I think it was about, probably about 10 years ago, I was brought on board by First Things, which is really a broadly religious conservative magazine. I think predominantly Catholic, but they have Jewish writers and they have Protestant writers as well. And they asked if I would write regularly for what was then their blog. It's now become a, a more a more formalized online e-zine, I suppose. And that really got me looking at more specifically modern cultural issues. And all I did really was apply the, the skills, the techniques, the thinking I developed through studying 16th and 17th century mm. to the 21st century. Uh, then, of course, I think in 2014, 2015, we see a dramatic acceleration in what I would call the sexual revolution, particularly relative to the, uh, um, uh, the, the decision that gay marriage is protected by the Constitution which incidentally occurred eight years ago this very day. This is, is, the, right? this is the eighth anniversary oh, of the Obergefell of the Hodges decision. And I think that that occurred in the middle of my pastorate. And I was already aware and had been made aware by colleagues in the pastorate that it was a dangerous thing to assume that anybody under the age of about 35 thought the same way that I did about sexuality, sexual mm. identity, etc., and it became very clear that the, the sexual revolution was entering a new uh, accelerated phase at mm. that point. So from a pastoral perspective, I became interested in, you know, why is this stuff happening? Why is it happening so fast? 
Why is it happening particularly dramatically in America when you know, America has traditionally been, at, at least on the surface, a more conservative country mm-hmm. than Western Europe, but in actual fact has begun to, to outstrip Western Europe on a lot of these issues. So those kind of questions mm. came pressing in. And when I got the opportunity to go to Princeton for a year, it was, well, wow, this would be a great year to, to spend time digging through some of the literature and talking to people like Professor Robert George and the other people on the fellowship with me that year who would help me to think more clearly about these issues. Mm. Did you go into your time at Princeton with that in <coughs> mind, thinking, I really want to tackle this issue? Yeah, you, the, the program I was on, the James Madison program, you have to have a research topic. Uh, the research topic morphed somewhat while I was there, mm. but essentially what I wanted to do was tackle the uh, how has... Homosexuality, how have so homosexuality and, and, and transgenderism, which was just emerging as a factor, how have these things become plausible? Not simply to the usual suspects, you know, the gender theorists mm. at UC Berkeley, but why is it the ordinary man and woman in the street are now confused about things that even 10 years ago mm-hmm. on, on the transgender mm-hmm. issue would have been regarded as unquestionable mm-hmm. orthodoxies? Thanks for joining us today on The Sword and the Trial. I just wanted to bring to your attention a few things that Founders is doing here over the next coming year. Uh, First, obviously, we are having our 2024 National Conference here in Southwest Florida. We want to invite you to join us for that. The theme is Remember Jesus Christ. That's January 18th through the 20th. Uh, Dr. Tom Askell will be there, Conrad Mbewe, Joel Beakey, Phil Johnson, and Travis Allen. It's going to be a wonderful time. Every national conference that Founders does is just a wonderful time of preaching and teaching and fellowship. You can register for the conference at founders.org slash conference. And there will also be Spanish translation during the conference and the live stream will be translated into Spanish as well. And one of the things that you often hear uh, here at Founders is the phrase, uh, find a healthy local church and build your life around it. We encourage people to do that. You know, that doesn't mean that if you have a, a church and you see some problems in it and you're a part of that church that you just leave right away, you be faithful to that church and try to help that church along. But if you if you need to find a new church or if you're moving or you're going somewhere and you're, you're looking for a good church, a body of believers to worship with, uh, we encourage you to check out our Founders Church Search. It's been a wonderful tool for myself and my family when we travel, and I know for many other people as well. And so uh, you can find that on our website at church.founders.org. I think the church, broadly speaking, has known probably for the past generation that it's the issue of sexuality that we are really going to come up against in the culture and with secularism. It's going to be a real difficulty for us. But I think your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, helps us to see how that has become the case, why that has become the case, uh, why sexuality in secularism uh, has become such a predominant issue and uh, why people are unwilling to... uh, to think past some of the orthodoxies of yeah, our yeah. modern secular culture. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think what your book and writings on this issue have done as well has helped kind of um, uh, bring into sharp focus the um, um, I don't, foolishness or lack of awareness in thinking that if we're just gracious and kind over here and don't call attention to things that are perverted over here, then they will like us. We'll have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. So we can do things like use pronoun hospitality, which Mm. was what was suggested by J.D. Greer at Lytton within the SBC and others. 
and that will give us opportunity for evangelism when in reality the the issue is so much more fundamental than that yeah. that it yeah. doesn't matter how kind you are yeah whenever you say a man is a man is a woman is a woman uh, you're going to be an enemy. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to, to sound woke at this point. But, uh, some are, uh, working on this book on early critical theories, some of the early critical theorists have this interesting concept drawn from Marxism, the totality, that really says you have to look at everything as part of the whole. Right. And I think there's a lot of truth there. For example, you know, there is a connection, for example, between abortion and transgenderism. Right. And one of the things as Christians we often do is we focus on the immediate symptoms and the fragmented mm-hmm. symptoms without realizing that actually in, in you know, pronoun hospitality, I'd never come across that phrase, by the way, it sounds kind of obnoxious, but uh, <laughs> probably I'm assuming it well meant. I, mm-hmm. I don't mean that as a criticism of the man uh, who suggests that, but it's, it, it, I think, as you point out, Tom, likely naive, but it also misses the fact that none of these things occur in isolation yeah. and that you can find you know, conceding in one area for an apparently good reason might actually prove lethal in another area that you didn't even think of, right. precisely because, you know, you know, when I say the critical theorists are aware of this, things mm-hmm. exist as a totality. Mm, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and your thoughts on abortion cannot be separated from your abo- thoughts on sexuality, cannot be separated ultimately from your thoughts on gender. Mm-hmm. These things are interconnected, and we need to understand those interconnections. Yeah. You, you know, I don't know J.D. Greer, but you know, let's say full marks for wanting to think about a good evangelistic strategy at that mm-hmm. point. We do need to think about these things, but we need to think about them understanding the totality that we're facing mm-hmm. so that we don't make well-meant but very foolish, perhaps even dangerous concessions. Yeah, you know, to that point, I think um, a good practice for parents is uh, reading through your book and then seeing some of the ideas that you you pull out and you criticize from some mo- more modern thinkers, and then watch like a, a children's movie with your children, a Disney oh, movie or something yeah. like that, and isolate and see the same ideas that you bring out in your book in the children's movie. But in your book, you, you're able to show how those ideas lead to something like yeah, transgenderism, yeah. lead to something like abortion. And then we have these same ideas in our children's movies and slowly infecting are populist, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, and you can't separate those those ideas from the symptoms, like you said. Yeah, and the strangest thing was that as I wrote my book, it sounds weird to say, but I suddenly became aware <laughs> of this stuff elsewhere. Mm. Yeah, it's almost that once you've seen something, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. You begin to realize, wow, it's everywhere in the way people talk. Mm-hmm. It's in commercials. You know, we tend to think, well, the deadliest stuff on the internet is pornography or something. Well, yes, mm-hmm. but also commercials. Right. Yeah. They too can promote this kind of thinking about the self. Mm-hmm. Because it's not just a sexual thinking about the self. The sexual thinking about the self connects to a deeper expressivist yeah. understanding of the mm-hmm. self. Yeah. You know, the, the world is, is so good at discipling. And they've done a very effective job through uh, commercial marketing and entertainment and education in discipling us into their way of thinking. And the church has got to up its game. We, we have to come to grips with the reality that God has given us in Scripture what we need to stand firm in this evil day. But if you don't see the connection of um, Genesis 1-1 to sexual ethics and to marriage and to parenthood, then you're going to just try to contend for, yeah, you know, we believe marriage is between a man and woman. But if you're not clear on what a man is, what a woman is, and what creatures are and what the creator is, mm-hmm. then all of that is on shifty ground. And I, I think that's what I'm seeing where we have been led astray time and time again. It's because everybody assumes 
that we're talking about the same things over here. Yeah. And those assumptions no mm-hmm. longer hold. And yeah. we've got to go back and say, no, there is a God in heaven. I, I've contended for a while now that I think Genesis 1-1 is the most controversial and important verse in all the Bible because it just sets the mm-hmm. stage for reality. And reality has been uh, remade in yeah. so many yeah. ways by this new culture. Mm-hmm. So, Carl, tell us uh, about the projects you're working on now. What are you, what are you writing at this time? I've got two books that are, are underway. Uh, one is, it's actually for Broadman and Holman, the Baptist yeah. Press. They approached right. me two or three years ago and said they wanted a book that they would could recommend to their schools, their seminaries, uh, on critical theory. Mm. And uh, the intellectual snob in me came out at that point, and I said, yeah, I'll do the book, but I'm going to write it on serious critical theory, not some of the jokers mm. who are floating around today. Mm-hmm. So I said, I'll do it, but I want to do it on a group known as the Frankfurt School. They mm-hmm. were, they're really the, the founders of the Critical Theory Feast. And they, they flourished really between, you know, the, the heyday of the Frankfurt School is between you know, the early 1930s and the late 1960s. And these were men who had mastered the Western philosophical tradition, by and large, in order to reject it. Mm-hmm. But they had mastered it in the first place. And so they were very substantial figures, and they were wrestling with big questions. You know, why did Hitler come to power, for example? Not, are drag queens a good thing? It seems to me as a, you know, a real come down for critical theorists who are wrestling with that question. So I'm, I'm just wrapping that book up. It'll be about 70,000 words, and mm. it's really aimed for undergraduate slash seminary students. Uh, it'll be, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's eight, nine chapters, Most of the chapters, a bit like the self-book, will be expository. And then at the end of each chapter, there will be a reflection on, okay, as a a sort of Christian, thinking Mm -hmm. about this, what goes wrong here. Mm -hmm. So it's not... The, it's got to be polemical, but mutedly so, because my major concern there is to get people to actually understand the terms. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, as they come to understand them, the reflections will then be pretty obvious what the problems are. I can't think of anybody better to write that book because uh, you sign all of your emails, CRT. CRT. <laughs> I, am the, I had great fun. In fact, you, go, you guys, the, the Southern Baptist Convention, and all those headlines of SBC declares CRT completely unchristian, etc. I love those. Guilty. Uh, made, uh, made me laugh. And, uh, and even my own president at the college, the student newspaper, ran a headline. Uh, president McNulty says, no place for CRT in gross city classrooms. Uh, uh, so, so, yeah. And I'm also doing a book on nihilism, which is uh, really going to be setting it up as a, as a debate between uh, Christianity and Nietzsche mm-hmm. to some extent. Uh, and I wonder, I, I'm at a stage in my career, which is kind of fun, that I'm, I just write now on things that interest me. I, I'm yeah. not having to write to keep my job. <laughs> so the, the nihilism book is one that I'm really looking forward to. When you get paid to read stuff that you'd read as a hobby anyway, that's mm-hmm. a great job, mm-hmm. and I'm very mm-hmm. blessed to well, have that job. Thankfully, the things that interest you, I think, are a real help to the church um, because there are, both from the right and the left, there are ideas that are, are wanting to make their way into the church that I think Christians are very susceptible to. I think yeah. even this Nietzsche yeah. issue, uh, maybe even coming more from, from people on the right, uh, yeah. can be a danger to, to people in the church. That was actually, I'm actually writing mm. it for Sentinel, which is a branch of Penguin Random House. It's not mm. a specifically religious press. It's more mm-hmm. conservative. And um, the editor, my editor at, at uh, Penguin Random House, Bria Sanford, Christian, Christian editor, her major concern, actually, when we were discussing the plan for the book was, it's the, it's the Nietzscheanism on the right mm-hmm. that's, that's really worrying. And I think that plays in, you know, one of the things that we've not, 
Tom, you talked about the doctrine of creation. Uh, I think one of the things that my overall church history has taught me is that every era has its own peculiar challenges. Mm. You know, I cut my teeth in Reformation, which was really debate about sacraments and justification. Mm-hmm. Uh, I taught early church where the debates are doctrine of God and, and God's grace. And I think today anthropology, mm. and it's important that both the left and the right get their anthropology right because yeah, neither rugged Nietzschean individualism nor a kind of Marxist-oriented corporatism are actually biblical. You know, mm. Both of them represent problems. We happen to live in a country where perhaps the left anthropology dominates the news headlines more. But that shouldn't, uh, that shouldn't make us as Christians think that, okay, just the equal and opposite is the truth. Mm-hmm. I think we need to realize that, no, we need a biblical anthropology here. Because mm-hmm. ultimately everything hangs on that. Again, mm-hmm. go back to that totality idea. If your th- anthropology is wrong, your doctrine of salvation is going to be wrong. Everything, your, your ethics are going to be wrong. And we live in an era where I think the big... The big question is anthropology. Yeah. 80 years since C.S. Lewis gave the lectures that became the abolition of man. Mm-hmm. I read those uh, lectures again in the last 12 months. You know, he couldn't possibly have known in 1943 how accurately he was going to be describing the world yeah. of, of 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he really put his finger on the beginnings of the crisis of anthropology in 1943. Mm-hmm. It also has, I was reflecting even just yesterday, um, the implications that anthropology in an improper anthropology has on Christology. I mean, you, the church believes, the scripture teaches that uh, the Son of God assumed a human nature. What does yeah. it mean to have a human nature? What is a human nature? Yeah. And if you don't yeah. understand what a human nature is, well, you can't have a proper Christology. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Carl, you're you're an outsider to the SBC. Outsider. Much so. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not this week. The SBC is another country. They <laughs> do things differently. <laughs> That's right. Not from around here, uh, or the PCA as well. I yeah. mean, though you're yeah. probably closer yeah. associated to that. So, give us your take. On what do you see going on in these two major yeah. uh, Protestant denominations? Well, I, I, I'm, a, I'm an outsider to, to American conservative Christianity in general. I, I, after 22 years here, I'm getting something of a handle on it. <laughs> but I've always, one of the big differences to me, back home I'm very comfortable being called an evangelical because mm. back home evangelical means J.O. Packer, Martin Lloyd-Jones, mm. John Stott. Uh, over here it has a much broader cultural, political connotations. So... That's one of the big things in Western America, the, 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 the broader cultural questions. And that can be a good thing because I think in some ways a lot of, I get the impression of British Christians, they've been caught terribly off guard by some of the cultural developments because they don't have a tradition of thinking mm. in those terms. What do I see going on in the PCA? PCA strikes me as a very, it, it seems from an outsider's perspective to be quite a factionalized Presbyterian denomination. Um, I do think that it seems to me to be moving in the right direction at this point in time, and I base that really on the fact that the progressives in the PCA don't seem to have a figurehead. They don't seem to have a leader anymore. Um, whereas conservatives, you know, you've got a guy like Kevin DeYoung, and I think mm-hmm. Kevin DeYoung represents the best of the PCA. He doesn't carry the the baggage of the Confederacy, mm. put it that way. Uh, but on the other hand, he has a really clear grasp of uh, the core tenets of, of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be uh, a Protestant, and what it means to be a Presbyterian. So I'm, 
I'm hopeful for the, the PCA. Mm. It, it's, it sounds odd coming from an OP guy because the OPC has this reputation of being very litigious. In actual fact, in my 20-odd 20, 20 years in the OPC, there's been almost no litigiousness at all. The, the PCA is always fighting, it seems. Mm. But it seems to me they've been moving in a, in a decent decent direction. Mm. On the SBC, very difficult for me to, to make a call because the SBC is yet one step further removed from my experience. But again, encouraged by many of the things uh, I'm seeing. Th this sounds a, a horribly negative way of putting it, but encouraged by some of the people I've seen leaving the <laughs> SBC uh, on both sides. Makes you know, it's, it's a kind of, um, you know, there, there's always uh, addition by subtraction in mm. denominations. Yeah. Uh, and many of my you know, good friends, uh, it, that sounds awful, many of my best friends. Are <laughs> but I mean, is I, I enjoy very good Christian fellowship with a number mm. of SBC guys. Andrew Walker, for example, mm. is a colleague of mine at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. I think the work that Andrew is doing uh, in uh, ethics, public theology, that's tremendous. Mm -hmm. So that's he's not the denomination, of course, but I right. think the denomination is fostering some real talent. Yeah, uh, and uh, I'm kind of because I'm not able to parse the, you know, when when they when you elect your new president, I have no idea if the new president's a good guy or a bad guy, where he fits. <laughs> so I'm, I'm unable to speak at that kind of level mm. about the SBC, but yeah. encouraged and always found. I think one of the things that that is attractive to me about the SBC is the strong uh, missions. Mm. orientation uh, that it it is a, uh, an outward looking denomination which mm -hmm. Presbyterianism can sometimes tend to be rather introspective mm -hmm. and my impression from the Southern Baptists I know is that they're outward looking mm. yeah. people so very grateful for the that is why we exist yeah it is and uh, even at our last annual meeting in New Orleans a few weeks ago uh, I think there were 70 more than nearly 80 uh, missionaries that were commissioned wow. there and just listening yeah. to their stories very yeah. briefly yeah. it was moving and it is a good reminder yeah this is this is why we've come together uh, we've got our issues obviously we've got some challenges I think there's a lot of things just beneath the surface that if they're not dealt with will uh, wind up having some uh, very negative uh, consequences going forward but uh, this was one of the most hopeful conventions we've had in recent years that just mm, took place. Nice. So perhaps the Lord is uh, beginning to wake some people up and move us in a more healthy direction. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got a couple of days of holiday scheduled. Yes, we're here. off to uh, Delray Beach for a couple of days. All right. Unexpected holiday. And, and you're gonna, <laughs> <laughs> but a true. holiday nonetheless. Well, there you go. Well, uh, you're, you'll get to drive across Alligator Alley. Again, hopefully without the... Uh, a flat tire. Torrential rain this time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so you should be able to see some alligators. There should be some out sunning uh, today. So I hope Look that happens for that. you. But we appreciate your coming and teaching for the Institute of Public Theology. Uh, if you'd like to know more about that, you can go to instituteofpublictheology.org and learn about the class that Dr. Truman just uh, completed teaching and about other courses that we're offering. We'd love to talk to you more about that. And brother, we're delighted for you and your ministry and your wife. We're grateful that y'all come to be with us and hope that you'll come again down here and we can enjoy more fellowship in the future. Look forward to it. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for joining us today on The Sword and Trial. But wait, there's more. We realized that there was more we wanted to talk to Carl about after we completed the episode, and so we teed him up with a question about Big Eva. Many people don't realize that Carl Truman is the one who coined the term 
Big Eva. So listen to his response. So Dr. Truman, I don't know, probably 10 to 15 years ago, you wrote an article, I think it was at Reformation 21, on, uh, and you coined the term Big Eva. I did. And that, uh, <laughs> that talk- may be... That may be your your biggest contribution to uh, to evangelicalism. Um, so first off, I'm just wondering exactly what did you mean by it when yeah. you coined the term, and then how do you see that term in its use today? And would you yeah. agree with that? Yeah, use? it's interesting. Uh, when I coined this, in fact, whenever I mentioned it, I used to stick a picture, a little photograph, a very large. A German opera singer wearing a Viking hat. So sort of, she was big Eva. Uh, uh, greatly upset a very humorless member of the administration at my previous place of employment. Uh, but uh, what I meant, I, I was talking of the, really speaking of the way that big conferences at that point had taken on a life of their own. And what I was concerned about was that they end up being kind of authority structures that are unaccountable. Mm. Uh, on two levels. One, I worry for the guys who are always speaking to these huge crowds. I remember mm-hmm. I was once on the platform at Together for the Gospel. On a, I was on a panel about my criticisms of celebrity <laughs> pastors. I was the one non-celebrity pastor on this panel. And I remember when I got up there, I was so nervous, I, I immediately made a joke. And like 6,000 people laughed. <laughs> and I remember thinking at the time, I, wow, I could get used to this. Mm-hmm. It also sort of worried me in the yeah. thinking, yeah, that, how do you how do you do that on a regular basis and it doesn't take its toll right. in terms of making you think that you're, you're bigger than you are? Mm-hmm. Um, so my one, one concern was that you know, for, the, for the character of the people involved in these big conferences, mm-hmm. and that's not to say that if you, if you speak at a big conference, your character's going to fall, not at all, but it takes a, a certain kind of character who's made sure they have a certain kind of accountability structure around them, I think, to avoid that temptation. And the second thing, perhaps more pressing in some ways, was the impact it has on the church, that you end up with ordinary local churches uh, full of Christians who look to other people Mm -hmm. as their spiritual guides and gurus. Uh, So that was my concern. And, of course, thirdly, the huge money that's involved in a lot Mm -hmm. of these things. It's, It's hard... Not, I would think, to be corrupted by the huge money that plays in. I always felt, again, not pointing fingers in a conference, but if you, if your organization books a massive 20,000-seater stadium four years in advance for a conference, you have to put a huge deposit on that. Mm. The pressure to make sure that it works is huge. Mm. And that could run counter to serious questions about the theological competence, et cetera, et cetera, of the kind of people you want to to bring into that. And when you think back to the young, restless, and reformed, so many of the early leading lights in that movement ended up as complete moral, personal Mm -hmm. train wrecks. And so the Big Eva thing was, this is like an industry, and we have to be careful that what we're not generating, it's not just a a sort of Christian Hollywood subculture, because Mm -hmm. that will bring all of that problem into it i think it's like a lot of terms it seems to have morphed into a term that you can throw at the other guy now in order to land a punch so i I see myself being referred to by people who will remain (laughs) nameless on this podcast but as you know representative of big eva (laughs) you know i mean i may have many faults but i'm an opc pastor man (laughs) you know you know if big eva is being in an 80 person congregation on a sunday in a non-evangelical denomination then i guess i'm big right, <laughs> at this right. point. so I, I fear it's become a 
just an empty insult now. But the point I was trying to get at was somewhat serious. Mm -hmm. I think the spirit of populism that has kind of rushed through our society today, uh, as, it, as it's coming to the church for good and for ill, uh, has really latched onto that term and has applied it to kind of the elitists, mm. you know, and and I think a lot of people who are critical, yeah. particularly of the Gospel Coalition, yeah. as really the big evangelical conference, uh, latched onto Big Eva and applied it to anyone who was in who was seen as a right. as Associated a leader with, in yeah. those in those yeah. movements, yeah. and uh, have a lot of people who have done that have gone on to develop their own, as some people have called it, little Evas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember reading an article by somebody who will remain nameless for the Gospel Coalition. It was I think it was seven reasons you might be drawing too much attention to yourself in your ministry, and what this person admitted was having a ministry named after yourself, which this person did. Oh, <laughs> and no. it was a sort of, okay, I think self-awareness is not a strong suit at, uh, at this point. Oh, my. Well, thank you for that, Carl. We appreciate uh, this little bonus conversation. Thanks. Mm. Thanks. Why are we here? What is the most important thing in the world? One of our greatest problems is, is forgetting. We, we forget what God has done for us. We forget what God has taught us. We forget things that we have experienced. If we don't pause, if we don't think deeply, if we aren't reminded again and again and again, we forget. It strikes me pretty significantly in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ. Why in the world would Paul tell a pastor to remember Christ? Well, he's not going to forget that Jesus Christ lived and that Jesus Christ taught, but he's going to forget the significance of Christ. Christ is ultimately our mission. The church is the body of Christ. A church has to focus on the supremacy of Christ because that's why we are the church. Christ is supreme overall. The church's great mission is to preach Christ. We're there to win souls. We're there to advance Christ's kingdom. The problem with the world is not that they don't agree with me. The problem is that they don't bow the knee to Christ. So that's why we're going to gather, to specifically, explicitly focus on the supremacy of Christ, to do our best to remind each other of the centrality of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the glory of Christ. So join us in Fort Myers, Florida, January 18th through 20th, 2024, as we focus on Jesus Christ. I hope to see you there.